Welcome back to the 411 Podcasting Network. I am your host, Larry Zonka, and this is episode 22 of the 411 on Wrestling Podcast. You may follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, YouTube, and of course the 411mania.com website. Please subscribe to the show, share us around on social media, and if you have time, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Today, I am joined by my good friend and a good brother, Steve Cook. How are you, Steve? Oh, hey, hey, hey. How you doing, Larry? I am doing fantastic. I uh, I finally got possession of the new prosthetic leg. He's got You got possession of the leg. Possession of the leg. Yes, yeah, so uh, that was good. Uh, everything fits. Tried it on a little bit. Did a, a lap or so around the kitchen island. I have to... I've, it's been recommended I wait till I go to my therapy to start walking a lot so I don't get into bad habits and cause like hip issues and stuff like that. So yeah, the last thing I need is more issues. But yeah, it's a it's good and it's a I will freely admit it's going to be a little more difficult than I thought. I um I was in the back of my mind everything's been going really well and the guy kept telling me like oh you're doing so good and I I guess in the back of my mind I was kind of thinking like oh, I'll throw this fucker on be able to walk around the house a little bit. Not quite that easy. So, no, not quite that easy. I was just gonna say, Larry. You know the old phrase: you have so many issues, you need a magazine. Yeah, yeah. And so much don't... baggage, you need a porter carry it all. <laughs> That's right. So, um, but yeah, no. I mean, everything's going good. I really can't complain. I should uh start doing some therapy this week. Uh, walking onto parallel bars and stuff like that, and getting ready to go. So I'm kind of excited about that to get mobile again. Yeah, buddy. Mobile, Larry Zonka. Watch so out. The last time we were together, Steve, we discussed the final episode of Monday Nitro. And we talked about maybe doing some more retro style shows like this. And uh, we are going to stick with that today. And today's show, we're going to go, you know, Tarantino back a little in time. And we're going to talk about the Eric Bischoff, Vince Russo reboot edition of WCW Monday Nitro from April 10th. 2000 now one of the things we talked about last time was the general importance of monday nitro um something a lot of people forget because nitro became such a joke in the long run but nitro debuted in 95 uh immediately became a competitive entity with wwf at the time and let's face it during that time wwf excuse me was pretty much creatively bankrupt i mean it was just you joked about it last time, all the uh, the career guys and the guys with jobs and the hockey players and just all kind of wacky shit like that. Uh, it wasn't yet the rise of Steve Austin and DX and The Rock, although that was coming. So you had WCW who was putting on pay-per-view quality matches, uh, matches with big names. They were changing the game. The NWO arrives. And everything is basically turned upside down. But unfortunately, the problem with WCW is, is there was never a long-term vision. Uh, it was the same guys in the main event, in and out. There was never a designed end to the NWO angle. And while they racked up, what was it, 83 weeks or so of ratings wins. 83 weeks. That's right. So the one thing that, that the one thing that happened was... <laughs> People started getting bored, 
And you eventually had the rise of Steve Austin, The Rock, DX, Mankind, and things were changing. Ratings started to dip, WWF started taking control, and then the big move was made. WCW decided we're going to fire everybody in creative. And that is when they hired Vince Russo and Ed Farrar from the WWF, who pretty much snuck out in the middle of the night. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, I remember Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara. Well, to be honest, at the time, I didn't really know Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara that well. Ed Ferrara, I couldn't spot in a police lineup. I mean, I, I think I, I remember later on that we, we found out he was the guy who had imitated Jim Ross on a previous episode of Sunday Night Heat. And boy, would that impersonation come back later on. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, Vince Russo, I remembered Vince Russo from the WF magazine. Yeah, um, he did some stuff on television, on Livewire, and uh, random TV shows. Is Vic Venom? Remember Vic Venom? He was the uh, the New Yorker, the New York announcer. He would, uh, you know, talk in his New York accent and t- say these controversial things. I guess they're controversial. I don't really, I don't remember what he said. To be honest with you, he was a good. I'll tell you, I enjoyed the magazine, Larry. <laughs> when I was reading the WWF magazine back and when I when I was a kid, I was a big fan of it. And I thought Russo brought a lot to the table there. So I, I could see why Vince McMahon would look at the magazine and think, hey, let's write the TV show like this. And Russo ends up getting a chance to write the show like that. And he ends up on a committee with uh, him and McMahon and Jim Cornette, which, uh, oh boy, Jim Cornette and Vince Russo, folks. That's, uh, those two are still going at it today. However many years later, they're still going at it, man. It's crazy. But, uh, yeah, so Russo helps. I mean, Russo does a lot of good stuff. He does a lot of interesting stuff. He does a lot of not-so-great stuff. But he gets people talking. The show picks up. The attitude comes in the WWE. And they start kicking butt on Oliver Dice W. But we get to the point where WWF decides they want to do the SmackDown show. And Vince Russo decides, well, that's that's too much work for me, bro. So he decides he's going to jump ship. He's going to go down south to Atlanta to WCW. And he's going to take Ed Ferraro with him. And they're going to turn it around. I remember seeing interview, an interview on WrestleLine.com, which there's a name drop from back in the past, WrestleLine.com. And I remember Russo doing this interview talking about how he and Ferraro were the reason that the WWF turned around. And they were going to do the same thing. When they got ICW, and uh, Larry, you can you can remind me. Um, did they do the same thing when they got ICW? Did they turn things around for that company when they right when they got there? No, sir, they didn't. Um, so you have Russo and Ferrara. They go to WCW and they start doing the uh, the powers that be and all this shit. And he brings in his crash TV stuff and his his goal allegedly is he wants to showcase the younger stars. But the problem was, is that while that's nice, and while trying to update Nitro was a good thought and something they needed, the thing was, is WCW fans were still WCW fans. They wanted a wrestling show. Uh And I don't mean that in a derogatory thing, but that's what they wanted. They wanted their fucking wrestling. They didn't want all this extra bullshit. They didn't want all the insider stuff. They wanted, you know, like the real deal. They wanted to wrestle. There's nothing. They wanted that, that Jim Crockett style from back in the day. Yeah. So back in the Horseman days. They ended up, you know, you have Vince Rosso running the show for a while, basically. 
And then WCW decides they're going to go with a booking committee. Uh, Vince Russo quits in protest, and he's replaced by Kevin Sullivan, Kevin Nash, and others during the time. Um, you have January through March of 2000, which is Ugh, probably rough. some of the worst stuff ever produced by WCW. Um, it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad, yeah. Although it is highlighted by the amazing build to the Yappa Pie strap match between Hulk Hogan <laughs> and Ric Flair. It was amazing. Just when you thought Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair couldn't do another feud, here they came. Yeah. Anytime you thought, well, that's over now, here they come. Yappa Pie. Yeah, exactly. So the ratings started free-falling, and WCW basically decided, what can we do? I know. We will bring back both Eric Bischoff and Vince Russo because they're the only two guys that had any success you know, with WWE or against WWE. And so they're going to bring them back. And then they announced that they're basically going to take two weeks off to do essentially best of shows. And on April 10th, the wrestling world was going to change forever, Steve. The night the world changed and it darn sure changed. Good old April 10th in Denver, Colorado, the Pepsi Center. That's right. So we I have, want to say it was new at that point, or is close to new. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was rather new at that point. So um, you get this reboot show, and the whole thing is they're trying to essentially wipe the slate clean. They're trying to fix the problems of the past. They want to go ahead and highlight younger talent, and again, there's not a problem with that. It's overall the way they went about it. And before we get into the full kind of blow-by-blow review, the main problems with this show are Vince Russo in a nutshell. Number one, you're going to reference a bunch of insider shit that 98% of your audience knew nothing about at the time because back in 2000, the internet wrestling community was a much smaller place. Much, much smaller than it is today, for sure. Yeah, number two, you got Vince Russo, you know, when when in doubt, bring in swear words. Mm -hmm. Gotta draw up a piece of shit and asshole and bitch all the time, because you gotta sound like you're cutting edge and badass. And then you basically, him and Bischoff made themselves the star of the show on night one. Non-wrestlers making themselves the star of the show has become quite the trend in professional wrestling, hasn't it? For way, way too long, Steve. It still is today. So we the show opens with this just fucking menagerie of characters in the ring because WCW had like 900 people under contract. There were all kinds of people <laughs> to stand around blank stares. There was pyro falling on people. Well, the best part is they all looked like they were dressed up for like you know, elementary school photo day, like their moms yeah. all dressed them and like, like just dudes that shouldn't be wearing like dressy clothes, wearing dressy clothes and looking weird. And I'll then like senior dinner dance. Yeah. And then they're like scanning <laughs> through and I'm, I'm thinking like, who, who the fuck is that? Who is, oh, okay. I know that, that's Lodi. That's one lane. <laughs> then I'm like, who, who's that? And so just, there was just so many guys on the roster and you have Jeff Jarrett who brings out Vince Russo. And and commentary was another big problem on this show because they're like, 
Vince Russo said he'd never be on TV. And then just like throughout the night, any time there was something that approached an edgy or surprising comment, you had Mark Madden. Whoa! <laughs> wow, he said that. And it's just yeah. Like completely yeah, yeah. embarrassing. It wasn't. It wasn't good. I, I want to point out that after we saw the people standing around the blank stairs, I want to read the list of the people that walked down to the ring after the people are standing there. Oh, this is a main event anywhere in the country. We we had Scott Steiner, followed by the Wall. Remember the Wall, brother? The Wall. The Wall. It's the Wall, brother. <laughs> Vampiro. Vampiro came out, followed by Booker, who was just Booker at this point because he had previously he had lost the rights to the name uh, of T. That's right. He had lost the T at this point, so he was still. It was just Booker. Uh, we had the Cat Ernest Miller, God bless him. Uh, Billy Kidman, Tori Wilson, Van Hammer of all people. And uh, J-E-F-F, ha, 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 J-E-F-F-R-E-T, uh, wearing the sleeveless silk orange shirt and looked like he walked through a car wash. I was absolutely dead at fucking, like, Vampire getting, like, essentially, like, a, or, not Vampire, Van Hammer getting, like, a fucking main event entrance. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, really? Was he just, he must have just been late to the ring. That's probably what happened there. He, just, he, was, he was just late. I would hope so, because <laughs> really, it's like, but that was just such a, an odd cast of characters. Coming out to the end, and yeah, so you have um, you have Jeff Jarrett introducing Vince Russo and talks about how he's the guy that put WWF on the mat and you know on the map and that they were going to take down the Good Old Boys Network. Yeah. And then you get the big Vince Russo appearance, and he talks about how Benoit, Malenko, Saturn, Guerrero, and Shane Douglas all saw the writing on the wall and left. Promised that the younger guys would have a real opportunity. And, uh, you know, it's like, this was a promo he basically reenacted in TNA years later. Pretty much. Pretty and, much. Uh, this is this is TNA for how many years? Yeah, and the best part is there's actually a, um, a watch-along that uh, was on the uh, Impact Twitch channel with, uh, like, Ethan Page and Joss Alexander. They're watching the episode where Russo is basically cutting this same promo. And they're both like, <laughs> Haven't we heard this before? And Alexander's like, maybe in another promotion. I don't know, a couple years earlier. Yeah, you know, well. then he's out there for like ten minutes just ranting, and he says shit like four times, and then he goes to say TNA doesn't stand for total nonstop action. It was supposed to mean tits and ass, and they bleep <laughs> out tits. And 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 Paige is like, are you shitting me? They bleeped out tits after letting them say shit like five times. <laughs> you know, it's just. It's the most hilarious thing because it, it's every Vince Russo promo. We're going to change things, young guys, blah, 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 blah. And I mean, I, somebody I, was interested for this, though, because I noticed in the crowd that I, I noticed that, good God, people, somebody, people brought Vince Russo signs. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I, I think they Which were just goes to the show the, uh, the, um, the taste that the people, fine people of Denver, Colorado had at this point. <laughs> so that brings out Eric Bischoff, who interrupts him. He's basically like, are, are you going to stop talking now? And he comes out, and of course, commentary plays up the fact that these guys don't like each other. How are they going to coexist? You know, I saw Lash LaRue was not pleased that, yeah. the, that Bischoff came out. I saw Van Hammer rubbing Russo's back. So maybe Hammer and Russo were, were bros. Maybe that's what happened there. Maybe they were something. Who knows? At least for a second until Hammer got kicked out of that old group. But, yeah. You know. So they, they come down and they end up shaking hands and hugging and 
<laughs> and it's like, oh my god! The commentary even says like, it was a work the whole time. It's like we're like four minutes into the show. Yeah, we had no idea whether they're friends or enemies or what the hell they're. I I remember hearing, I remember reading the rumors, of course, online about how uh, Russo's going to lead the young guys and Bischoff's going to lead the old guys. So I guess that is all put out there so they could do this big swerve. They could shake hands, they could hug. It was only the second most money killing handshake and hug that Bischoff would have in his career. (laughs) So yeah, so you know Bischoff, he talks about getting screwed by the old boys club. He makes he runs down Flair, Luger, Page, Sting, and Sid, and you know then then of course he attacks Hulk Hogan. And, yeah. Uh, this you know then of course you have um, you know Russo later on calls Flair a piece of shit on the bottom of his shoe because <laughs> they're all yeah. edgy. So Luger, Sting, Page, and them eventually come out because they're not part of the you know the young guys group obviously, and he, he's just Bischoff. Ripping everybody down, you know. Paige should be in a in a bar uh, serving drinks in the trailer park, signing books for his seven fans. He jokes about Sting should be in a Hollywood premiere, which is really funny later because they show the Hollywood premiere of Ready to Rumble, <laughs> and there's a bunch of new blood guys there. But I of guess course. that didn't count. No. Um, then you know. They mentioned Sid's the- softball game, of course. Yeah, and then of course they're gonna strip all the titles to make it an even playing field. And this is where you really start getting your first insider jabs that most people uh, had no clue about. Because Bischoff demands the world title from Sid. Sid's basically like, fuck you. He's just standing there. And Bischoff walks up to him and he's like, what are you going to do? Beat me up? You can beat <laughs> me up, Sid. That's fine. You can be, What's the matter, Sid? Forgot your scissors? And then because nobody reacted to it, he had to say it again. What's the matter, Sid? Forgot your scissors? Yeah, the announcers gave it a huge reaction, and nobody in the crowd said a word. Yeah, I believe Tony Schiavone was like, "Whoa, he went there." It was like, "Yeah, yeah, yes, he did, Tony. Thank you. I'm glad you're excited for this." Denver's like, "Huh?" Yeah, and like that's the thing is like nobody got that reference because uh, you know it's like and like this is like no respect disrespect to Dave or Internet people like not everybody was reading the Observer. Back when that incident happened with Arn Anderson. So not everybody knew that Sid stabbed the man with scissors. So it just came off as Eric Bischoff making a really random line about scissors that made no sense to them. And it didn't it didn't even get heat with the people that knew what he meant. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't care. <laughs> no, it was just like I'm like, okay, he brought up the Arn Anderson thing. That's 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 cute. So and yeah, so then we have uh we have Hulk Hogan arriving after the whole opening schlemiel there and i also want to mention real quick that uh, they had a shot of tony scott and mark there at ringside and i i never heard that mark man looked like he either looked stupefied or drunk he sat there with his mouth open for like 45 seconds while they talked seriously that, that was that was something i don't know if he was trying to catch flies or what he's doing yeah maybe I, flies I, coming off the piece of shit on the bottom russo shoe i don't know in my notes, I wrote he was uh, anxiously awaiting Bischoff or Russo to stick their dick in his mouth. Maybe so. that as well. So there you go. But Hulk he might Hogan. have just gotten in the news about what he's going to do later on the broadcast, though. Yeah. <laughs> Hulk Hogan arrives. You know, he's he's only 20 minutes late for the show, but hey, what are you going to do? He was taping his wrists. Yeah, he <laughs> like was ready why? for action. And then Sting basically goes and tells him what Bischoff did, and he's like, "I'm not ribbing you, brother." 
I think that Sting and Hogan were not supposed to be friends at this point, but I honestly don't remember. It's hard to remember, Steve, and like not that any of it mattered anyway. So they announced that they were going to have a number one contenders tournament on this show. And, yeah. And to punish all the guys that Vince Russo and Eric Bischoff don't like, they put all of them in this mini eight-man tournament or four-man tournament. Where the winner would get a title shot at Spring Stampede. So uh, heck of a way to punish these guys. Exactly. It was fantastic. So we started off with Diamond Dallas Page versus Super Unmotivated in 2000 Lex Luger. We at least got Kimberly and Elizabeth out for this match. That was easily the best part of the match. Maybe worth a star on its own, and that's it. Liz was looking fine. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, Liz looked great. Kimberly looked great. And that was about the the end of the positives. For the, the match sucked. The match was yeah. was god-awful. And they did the gimmick where uh, they came out. The music was – both the guys come out. The music's playing. And then they cut the music in the middle of each entrance. They even went to the point of cutting Luger's uh, lighting for his the poses gimmick he was doing at the time. So they're all like, "Man, look at this! They're cutting the they're cutting the music. It's totally mind games. How can these guys how can these guys wrestle without their entrance music? Like, oh my god, this is just completely insane. The announcers were completely befuddled by all this. Yeah. So what followed was a four minute and twenty five second match that was really bad for three minutes. It looked like, like two guys like uh, in wrestling school, pretty much. Yeah, they like traded low blows, and it just it was bad. And then all of a sudden, Buff Bagwell comes out, and he's new yeah. blood, so he gets full pyro in his entrance, oh, yeah. and he does his little douchebag dance to the ring and poses. And then he basically tries to sexually assault the women at ringside, leading yeah. to distractions. And Luger gets distracted, eats a diamond cutter, and it was a stinking pile of shit. And how about your babyface, uh, Diamond Dallas Page, uh, hitting Luger with the low blow and then taking advantage of Buff Bagwell accosting Elizabeth to hit the diamond cutter on Luger to get the win. Way to make him look super likable. That's right. <laughs> Hulk Hogan is having difficulty finding Eric Bischoff. Apparently this arena is gigantic and has way too many rooms. I was Kurt, wondering if that's what he'd been doing ever since Sting talked to him. Maybe. Like he's been doing that the whole time. Well, it was only like four and a half minutes. It wasn't that long. So, I mean, anyway, what was he? What was he going to do? Watch that shitty match? Well, certainly not. So, Kurt Henning meets with Vince Russo. He's upset that Russo put um, Jeff Jarrett in the world title match automatically. Russo, of course, bullshits him and apologizes. Makes a Henning versus Jarrett match and says, "If you can beat the chosen one, you can have the title shot." I somehow doubted his sincerity there. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you had Hennig come out here in a sleeveless turtleneck. You had Russo here with the gray dress shirt unbuttoned past his uh, pecs with the black T-shirt on underneath. Uh, just just terrible fashion here. Just ridiculous. Yeah, it wasn't good. Hulk Hogan still can't find Eric Bischoff, but we went to the ring and Tank <laughs> Abbott arrived. <laughs> Steve, would you like to discuss the Tank Abbott segment? Oh gosh! Oh gosh! Uh, Tank Abbott comes. Uh, he comes uh, coming on down to the ring. Uh, you know, mixed martial artist, uh, knockout artist, if you will, comes on down. Uh, David Penzer runs for his life. So what? What Abbott's whole deal is? He's looking for Bill Goldberg. Uh, Bill Goldberg's not around. I, if I remember correctly, Goldberg had been killed off by Scott Steiner at this point. Maybe I don't remember. He got killed by somebody, right? He's not you know. there, is all I know. 
It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But uh, Tank Abbott wants a piece of Bill Goldberg. Goldberg's not there. So Tank tells us, until you get your ass back here and fight me, I'm going to beat the holy hell out of these people. Who are these people, you ask? Well, it's going to be an innocent victim at ringside. So he <laughs> leaves the ring, starts looking around for a target. He sees the announce table. Uh-oh. He sees Scott Hudson says, holy poop. Um, uh, Tony Schiavone's not looking too happy, but uh, they got nothing to worry about. It's poor old Mark Madden. Mark Madden, who, by the way, has spent this whole segment putting Tank Abbott over, by the way. Uh, <laughs> he was the one guy saying nice things about the guy. So Tank Abbott takes Mark Madden. Uh, he beat that man. He beat that man with an inch of his life. And he decided that it'd be a good idea to take off Mark Madden's shirt. And I... <laughs> There should have been some kind of censoring on that, am I right? Some kind of black bar or something. Yeah, that was it, not it good. quickly went from like the best part of the show to the worst part of the show. It really did. In like, seconds, <laughs> like stop, stop, stop! <laughs> he rolls him into the he rolls him into the ring, punches him a few times, and security finally comes down. And <laughs> you know, and I am not a Mark Madden fan by any stretch of imagination. I don't think I've ever seen Mark Madden say anything that I agree with at all. Just seems like one of the most terrible human beings of all time. I, I don't think I'm being too mean to him by saying this. Uh, it just all seems accurate. Not a good person. Not somebody I am entertained by in the least. But even I kind of felt bad for the guy here. <laughs> especially especially when they covered this uh, on Bischoff's podcast. And uh, Bischoff talked about how, how Mark Madden really didn't want to do this. And... Well, who could blame him? But uh, Rooster decided it had to happen. So I kind of felt sorry for Mark Men, And I felt well, sorry for all of us for having to see them have their shirt off. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, dude. I'm not a Mark Madden fan by any stretch of the imagination, but who the hell would want to do this segment if you're not a trained wrestler? Tank Abbott was barely a passable wrestler, was a legit fighter. <laughs> and let me, let me tell you, I'm sure he stiffed Mark Madden about 18 oh, yeah. times here. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I wouldn't have wanted to do it either. So, but yeah, crime against humanity there with uh, ripping off Mark Madden's shirt didn't need that. And, On the bright uh, side, Mark Madden did not come back for the rest of the show, so we we had that going for us. Yeah, so Tank slightly redeems himself there. It wasn't like when Michael Cole got beat up and then came back next segment. Yeah, we don't need that. So Jeff Jarrett is upset with Vinny Rue about the whole match with uh, Henning later, and he's basically like, "Don't worry about it; it'll be fine." Billy Kidman. Yeah, shot at Jay Dillon for some reason. Oh yeah, because we have to insider stuff, Steve. <laughs> yeah. Then Billy Kidman tells Tori Wilson to stay in the back because he has to go take care of business. I was Hulk- pissed. Oh yeah, Hulk Hogan finally finds Eric Bischoff. Bischoff offers to set him straight, and they go into the locker room. And this is where young William Kidman Jr. the third comes out to try to make his career. Yeah. Didn't work, Steve. It sure didn't. Uh, you know what? I, I I like Billy Kidman. All right. He was a solid wrestler. I remember him having a fantastic match with Rey Mysterio and Nitro I went to back in 1999. There is really no reason for him to be involved with Hulk Hogan like ever, to be honest. And he comes out. He's got way too much pyro. Like I, the guy comes out. He looks like it looks like Randy Orton coming back in the evolution days. Remember just <laughs> way too much shit going on. It's kind of ridiculous. Uh, he's been used and abused, told to keep his mouth shut. It's his night. And he wants to address the biggest ego maniac of them all, Hulk Hogan and Kidman's heart and talents. And 
apparently the big thing, this is the whole, this is where this whole thing came from. Apparently Hogan did this interview. He was, you know, talking bad about the young guys. He called Billy Kidman a flea market champion. And uh, so Kidman responds with, who would know more about drawing flies than a piece of shit like Hulk Hogan? Well, the worst Hogan part is, the hang month. on, hang on. Real hmm? quick again, this is one of yeah. those problems that like 90% of the audience didn't know about that interview. And the commentary didn't explain it. No. They were just like, oh yeah, Hogan said that. Like sure. they never did a deep dive to explain to people why Billy Kidman was that upset, what Hulk Hogan said. So it comes basically off as Kidman being a whiny little bitch. Yeah, yeah, which we definitely seem like. Uh, they cut the Hulk Hogan Washington monitor backstage while Kidman's talking shit. And you know what threw Hulk over the edge, Larry? Yes, young William Kidman Jr. the third said, I hope you have balls as big as your bald spot. Yeah, <laughs> those were fighting words, brother. <laughs> you, know, you don't mess the, the, uh, with the bald spot, brother. That was WWE canon back in the day. Hulk got his music all the way to the ring, by the way. So we've already forgotten about that gimmick apparently so <laughs> all comes down and he's dropping all this insider lingo goddamn and he's talking about the push he's talking about how kidman's getting kidman wants to push and kidman's telling him his, his runs over it's just you know dropping insider lingo trying to be cool um like hulk's talking about how, about how billy kidman's pissy a pussy whipped but I'm he, just does, but he doesn't say Kidman's it not the he favorite says, here. he's like you're pee whipped brother he's pee whipped yeah brother yeah, the, that girl of yours and that guy, and then ends up being a fight. And, of course, Hogan's kicking his ass because why wouldn't he? <laughs> he does. He beats the shit out of him all around the ring. <laughs> like, I mean, it's already a tough sell, to be honest. As, as And I, I'm i trying not to sell Kidman's talent short, but nobody bought him on, like, a, a main event level with Hulk Hogan. And the size just didn't look good. as a, as a bad situation. Kidman up and pushed that level as of yet, and he never really was. So Hogan being him down wasn't a surprise to anybody except probably Billy Kidman. And all of a sudden, <laughs> all of a sudden, Eric Bischoff comes down because that's what we need is more non-wrestlers coming down. He's got a chair, brother. And I think everybody except Hulk Hogan knew what was going to happen next. Sure enough, Bischoff hits Hogan over the head with a chair. Bischoff makes the three count for, for Kidman over Hulk Hogan. Hulk busts himself open with, over this chair shot. And um, the the announcers mentioned that, yeah, Eric Bischoff is the story here. Yeah, if this was supposed to put Billy Kidman over, it did the exact opposite. Exactly. They they actually did say that. Like, it's all about Eric Bischoff for the most part. And, yeah, and like, so Billy Kidman gets his ass kicked. Eric Bischoff saves his life. And then they count the pin. And then they're like hyping this like it's a real match. You know, Kidman just pinned Hogan. You know, like they're like making a big deal out of it. It's like, dude, it wasn't a match. It was Hulk Hogan beating the shit out of him, and Eric Bischoff. <laughs> and then, like, the best part is like, Hogan's blade job is almost in slow motion. It's yeah, like, it, it's, it's it's not a bad blade job because Bischoff turns him juice, around yeah. to hit him with the chair, and he basically does the wipe your brow gimmick. <laughs> <laughs> he might as well have just pulled the blade. He might as well just like look into the camera. Show the blade to the camera and just rate it across his eyebrow. You know? Yeah. Excuse me for coughing there. But yeah, so he does like the wipe your brow gimmick, but he does it so slowly. <laughs> because Bishop turns him around and it's like, it's like when you hear the, scree- the screeching of a car, it's like, across his forehead, like as slow as possible. 
Well, the Hogan's knees sound like at the time, too, by the way. So then the best part is after this, Hulk Hogan is in the back. And he's throwing a fit, and I will try to reenact this the best I can. Yeah. Rawr! Kidman! Ah, son of a bitch! (laughs) Kidman, you bastard! Rawr! And he's he's just slamming shit around. It's, It's amazingly horrible acting. It reminded me of a cross between Terry Funk and Citizen Kane. <laughs> sure. I mean, Remember well, Citizen Kane where the where Kane like goes crazy and tries to he tries to push furniture over and he just really can't. Yeah. It, it was like that. And yeah, he sounded like it, Terry Funk. <laughs> so it, yeah, it's amazing. And then Ric Flair finally arrives. We're like an hour into show. He's he's late. Yeah. Uh, well, nothing, I mean, nothing wrong nothing, with that. Nothing new there. <laughs> and uh. He's watching footage from earlier in the evening because he had no clue what happened. And then he gets his full entrance music. So again, yeah, we're, we've already stopped doing the whole half entrance music stuff. Ric Flair comes out, says, fans, don't forget about John Elway because Brian Greasy threw a touchdown. <laughs> How about that? And I'm like, whoa, Brian Greasy was the quarterback at the time. How about that? That's a hell of a reference. His run lasted about as long as Kidman's, too. So, I mean, Was Cordell Stewart not, not busy? I guess. <laughs> and he says, uh, he didn't get old, he got great. And then your boy Scott Steiner came big out. Big Papa Pump. <laughs> the big bad booty daddy comes on down. And uh, since everybody else is shooting on this damn show, Steiner's going to do it as well. He talks about how everybody else got out of W and became WWF champions while he was kind of stuck there. Stuck behind uh, Ric Flair and his old bastard friends. He says old bastard friends like 14 times during this promo. Gotta um, swear, Steve. Bastard! <laughs> Bad, yeah, I mean, if you had a, if you had like a drinking game where you took a drink every time you said bastard during this promo, oh God, you'd be on the floor halfway through. It was kind of crazy. So, uh, yeah, he, he mentions Flair's bleached teeth. He uh, puts him some joke teeth and does a nice little Ric Flair impression. And then all of a sudden, while Scott Steiner's talking smack, we see none other than the man who we thought was out of DCW. I think he, we thought he was down XPW at this point, for, for God's sakes, Extreme Pro Wrestling. The franchise, Shane Douglas is back. But, but Steve, he doesn't even work here. He doesn't even work here, for God's sakes. I mean, Steiner's still talking back there while this is all going on. It doesn't matter. Shane Douglas out here beating the crap out of Ric Flair. And you know what? If you were part of that 10% or so, I'm being generous, saying 10% or so, that knew all about the heat between Ric Flair and Shane Douglas from back in the ECW days. Brother? Brother, you got some stuff going on here. Man. Yeah, and like the, the best part is like you have Scott Hudson who's like, we know the bad blood between Shane Douglas and Ric Flair. No, Scott. Most of the people didn't. Like, I knew about it. Some other people knew about it. But the vast majority of people did not know about it. Uh, Which, again, yeah. is the failure of them not giving context, going with insider shit, and assuming everybody knows about it. It was it was kind of ridiculous. Kind of ridiculous. Uh <laughs> I will say that I did like the promo that Douglas cut later of Swift on Mean Gene Oakland. I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, Gene, Gene runs him down. You don't even work here. I won't dignify you with a response, Shane Douglas. Yeah. Yeah. It's not as good as blow it out your ass, O'Hare, but it was Gene, <laughs> Gene all fired up and being awesome. So Yeah, that's pretty good. Gene was fired up and Shane was fired up, cut the press. So that part was good. That was actually a good part of the show. 
So essentially, for those that don't know, the whole thing is Ric Flair apparently told Shane Douglas years ago that like he thought he was really good and talented and then refused to work with him. And that led to Shane Douglas making his career on a bashing Flair and shoot interviews and promos in ECW, calling him Dick Flair and saying yeah. he ruined the business and always challenging him to a match but never getting it. And we found out years later that the, there was it was actually a lot closer to happening than we ever thought. Because there was actually negotiations going on at one point where they could have actually had a pay-per-view main event with Ric Flair and Shane Douglas, and obviously that didn't happen. Uh, XW uh, made offer more money. Or you know, it's tough to tell back in those days with all the stuff going on Flair and XW. I think it's during one of those times when Flair's on the outs that they're trying to make it happen, but. Uh, not until right now on Vince Russo, ECW, ECW. Well, it's like ECW, kind of. You know. Crazy shit. <laughs> yeah. So then we see Bret Hart sitting in the crowd looking completely disinterested. <laughs> don't blame him. <laughs> uh, yeah, Bret, uh, at this point, I don't think he'd been around since he... Well, he was around briefly after he got the concussion from Goldberg at Starcade, And he did a couple things with uh, Terry Funk and with Sid. And I think his... I think it was right before he sold out where he tapped out and disappeared. And I think this is his comeback, but between you and me, he doesn't do anything. So don't don't worry about it. So we headed back to the ring for what was allegedly a wrestling match. Number one contenders tournament match, Sid Vicious versus Sting. They got, they got their, their, they got their music in Iron Man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're already done with that. Well, actually, Sting had just music, while Sid, Sid had the music and the pyro, because he was the he had been the champion at this point. Yeah, what was really weird is, like, coming into the show, Sid was a babyface, and basically wrestled like a heel against Sting. And yeah. they proceed to have a bad match, the ref gets bumped, and then the wall brother arrived, hits <laughs> Sid with, like, it was a, such a lame chair shot, Lance Storm took issue with it. Oh boy! Oh, and boy. then he allegedly choked Sand through a table on the floor, but he only picked up Sid about like an inch off the ground and laid him on the table, and it broke. And Sting won by a countout. So another valiant babyface victory. We got Doug Dillinger sighting this. That's pretty cool. <laughs> and then in the back, we head back to King Kong Hogan. Rawr, Kevin, <laughs> son of a bitch, where are you? <laughs> and yeah. Oh, and then he was looking for Bischoff, too, so what are you going to do? But it's, uh, yeah, it's just Hulk Hogan and the bad acting was amazing. We also had Ric Flair come back out and cut another promo. Yep, he, he, he totally skipped over Scott Steiner and basically said uh, he wanted to uh, do the uh, match with Douglas. And it's a shoot. Shoot, brother. Got a video package for Ready to Rumble where a bunch of the new blood appeared at the premiere, invalidating Bischoff's earlier point with Sting. <laughs> and then we uh, had Jeff Jarrett and Kurt Henning, which the winner would go on to, was it Spring Stampede, to uh, fight for the championship. Yeah, and, uh, and at this point, nobody in the nobody in the free world thought Kurt Henning was going to main event Spring Stampede. No, and they proceeded to, and I like both guys, but they proceeded to have a horrible match. <laughs> and it, it wasn't that it was all them, but it's like, it's a bad match. And then all of a sudden, Meat oh debuts. Sean it was, he was Meat and WF. <laughs> yeah, that's the worst part. They just couldn't go, 
That's Sean Stasiak, son of former WWF champion Stan Man Stasiak. No, they go, hey, that's Sean Stasiak. He used to be meat. Yeah, because everybody was really uh, wanting to see that guy again. Yeah, so they basically tried to, when he was there, make Sean Stasiak the new version of Mr. Perfect. He came out to his music, did the gum swat, and then he went in and I assumed was trying to do something like a Samoan drop. <laughs> I have no idea what that was supposed but to be. But <laughs> for as jacked and big as he was, he couldn't pick Henning upright. And it ended up looking like the shittiest fireman's carry slam you've ever seen. I mean, if you and, guys complain about the attitude adjustment, come on now. This this made the attitude adjustment look like a freaking Death Valley driver. Yeah, so then, like, you have Jared hitting the stroke, and he picks up the win, like, in four and a half minutes. Another dud-level match. Not good. No, the, I mean... And that was always the knock on well Vince Russo's writing anyway is that well he could he could write a lot of storylines he could write a lot of run-ins and things like that but man when it comes down to the bell to bell entering action he has no fucking idea. Well, it was always more about the story, Steve, and he thought that was so much more important that the wrestling was a backdrop to the story, which is why he believed in run-ins and so many shitty finishes and stuff like that. And, and there's so little time, there's no time to tell a story, so the guys just go out there and they just go through the motions until it's time for running. Yep. Kevin Nash limped his way into the building. He was on the phone telling somebody to get to the arena if they could. Everybody speculated it was Scott Hall. He never appeared. Of course. Then, then we got the epic Ric Flair-Shane Douglas match. Flair got his music in. He got a shit ton of pyro, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he wrestled in his street clothes, by the way. Well, both these guys wrestled in their street clothes, but uh, this began a period where Ric Flair had wrestled in his street clothes for quite a while because he did not have that look for television yep. at this point. They brawled for three minutes. Uh, Flair was basically beating the shit out of Douglas the whole time. And then Vince Russo, who was never on TV before in his life, came out with his bad hit Flair, and we got a DQ at like three minutes. It was a pile of shit that Vince Russo should try to get off his shoe. Not Ric yeah. Flair himself. Uh, just horrible. He steals Flair's Rolex. Yeah. And like, oh, he, he took part of Flair's identity. It's like, it's fucking watch, guys. I'm sure he has like 18 more. I thought that if Shane Douglas had taken the watch, maybe that might have got some heat. But no. Well, again, like it if was Shane all about Russo the, and If Shane had taken the watch and destroyed it or something, it might work. But it's... It's Vince Russo doing it, so who gives a shit? Yep. Kevin Nash limped his way out to the ring with his crutches. And, yeah. Uh, so there we go. We got uh, another interesting promo here. Yeah. So go ahead and uh, tell us what a uh, big sex they had to say. <laughs> there are some doozies in this promo. Some doozy lines in this in this promo. Uh, he mentions we got a couple of jackoffs in the back running around deciding whose careers they're gonna make and who's they're gonna break. And these two jackals are going to play wrestler, attack the boys, for God's sakes. And, of course, he drops Scott Hall's name here because that's what he did. He has the question, Larry. The question is, what happened to that sweet little wrestling show they're doing every Monday? Where is the dog when we need him? I did laugh at that, I will say. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> that was a high point. He just kept talking for a while after that. And then... uh we get to another key point of this show. 
This is uh, some big stuff here, Larry. The ECW World Heavyweight Champion Mike Awesome, of all people, comes out and attacks Kevin Nash. He doesn't even I, work here, Steve. He doesn't even work here. Doesn't he have a title defense in Indianapolis or something? I don't think he even mentioned Indianapolis. Uh, that was a whole to-do, of course, because uh, they were a little worried that uh, they'd do something with the title belt. And uh, there was all sorts of talking back and forth about how they have to mention the ECW. They have to mention the Indianapolis show. They have to mention title defense coming up, blah, blah, blah. And they didn't really mention any of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Mike Awesome comes out here. He attacks Kevin Nash, the career killer, the fat chick thriller, thriller Mike Awesome. Yeah, buddy. Man, did Mike Awesome have just... Uh, he just had an awesome Dice W run, wouldn't you say? No. That, it was really one of the worst runs of any, <laughs> of any promotion, of well, any you wrestler You had the history. fat chick thriller, the 70s, the 70s guy, guy. <laughs> and you so eventually bad. became the Canadian killer at the end. And yeah, it's just... We just couldn't let him be Mike Awesome. When Mike Awesome is part of Team Canada, which I don't know if Mike's awesome... Every, every, I don't know if you ever even been to Canada at that point ridiculous but uh yeah poor poor mike awesome he might have been in something he he could have been a contender i guess you could say but yeah. instead we cut to we cut to hulk hogan saying he's gonna eat eric bischoff's ass listen i mean that's personal preference and all but i didn't need to know that <laughs> it was yeah. and but then uh before he can go eat some ass all of a sudden, uh, he looks out the window, and sure enough, Larry, it's the White Hummer. The White Hummer is back. You might recall, if you were watching Dice W in 1999, there was a ran there were a series of incidents involving White Hummers attacking wrestlers and vehicles. This was a thing that happened over and over again. And it turns out that after the White Hummer rams Hogan's limo a few times and pretty much kills him dead, we find out that inside the Hummer... All this time, well, probably not all this time. Eric Bischoff and Billy Kidman. Yep, Bischoff was driving. Of course, Bischoff was driving. Kidman's riding shotgun because Kidman can't even get to be the the alpha dog in this mess. <laughs> Again, it was about putting Bischoff and Russo over as the top heels. But Kidman did get to give him the old NB spray paint gimmick. So yeah, he got to do that at least. Yes, it was amazing. Terrible. So <laughs> we we move on to the main event of the evening. Sting versus Diamond Dallas Page. The winner moves on to face Jeff Jarrett for the title. Page guys pyro for this one. Yeah, everybody gets entrance music and shit again. But like I said, they already sh shorter attention span than Vince in the wild card gimmick these days. Seriously. <laughs> so, um, this at match actually got compared to everything else. Time went almost eight and a half minutes. It wasn't good but it felt better than the other matches. I guess when you're giving everything else a dud and this gets one star, it's better. <laughs> it was the match of the night, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Um, so basically, Paige and Jared end up brawling. Vampiro, who was Sting's friend, comes out and attacks him, hits the nail in the coffin, Paige hits the diamond cutter, picks up the win, and he is moving what a lame top of What a lame number one contender, by the way. Yeah. I mean, this man won by using a low blow and a distraction finish on Lex Luger. And he wins by a distraction finish on Sting, with somebody else hitting Sting with a big move. Super baby faces, man. Yeah, brother. And then and then he he just stands uh, idly by while Kimberly gets El Cabong with the guitar. I mean, what kind of top baby face is this? That's right. 
So later on, they, they close the show. Jeff Jarrett comes out to take his little bow. Paige comes out. Steiner comes out. Luger comes out. Bagwell comes out. Vampira comes out. The Wall comes out. And then Bischoff and Russo come out. And they sit there and they basically look at all the carnage and they smile because they're the stars of the show. Um, and then pissed off, I guess he's pissed off, but um, <laughs> constipated looking WCW dad Bret Hart appears, stands behind them, scowls at them. and He walks out with three seconds left, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, he stands there, looks like he's going to take a shit, show ends. I should also I also want to point out that uh um did you notice what the fans were chanting during this whole mess with like the entire roster down here fighting feuding all this nonsense? What were they chanting? Do you do you recall what they were chanting? No, I don't. Goldberg. Ah, okay, yeah. Yeah, they chanted was, from during the, ta- the the beginning and then during the tank segment obviously and yeah. Yeah, the most over guy on the show and he was smart enough not to be there. Yeah, exactly. So that is how it ended and then it's amazing. This show was such a fucking self-masturbatory effort by Bischoff and Russo. It was pretty much everything I hate about wrestling. It was nothing but getting them over, a bunch of bullshit, a bunch of matches that don't care, and their whole goal is that we're going to put Jeff Jarrett over as the top guy. But the thing is, and there's not necessarily something wrong with that. Yeah, it's I how mean, they're at least doing they it. had somebody in mind. Yeah, but maybe. it's how they did it. The fact is, is the reason WWF made the comeback is because WCW got stale. And DX was on the rise. The Rock and Steve Austin were on the rise. Mankind became popular and got on the rise. And it all kind of happened organically and built up to where they had a groundswell of support behind them. Now you're just being told, you know, career mid-carder Jeff Jarrett is your star. Because we said so. It was the thing that happened. <laughs> and Jarrett became the top star in Dice W, kind of, sort of. Which led to him becoming the top star in TNA for how many years? Yeah, so again, I, I say it's that... amazing it's, how much TNA was a rerun of uh, this period of Dice W in many, in many ways. In many, many ways, yeah. So again, if you're one of those people that think that Raw every Monday is like the worst show you've ever seen... You need to go back and watch Nitro from January to March, and then this show of 2000. It's some. And watch some more. TV. Watch some more because the next week is when David Arquette starts doing things. So stick around for that. There you go. But the thing is, is like Raw is pretty much bad most weeks. But the thing is, is at least on Raw, I get a couple of matches I tend to enjoy. There's some angle advancement. Again, there's too much McMahon bullshit. I hate Shane being on my TV all the time. But this is like one of the worst shows of all time for Nitro. Just a horrific effort from everything that was supposed to be a show that turned the business around, Steve. Indeed, indeed. And uh, to, if the if the all elite wrestling people are listening, if they're uh, if they're looking for ideas for their upcoming uh, television debut, my advice would be for them to actually watch this show and not do anything on it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't do a darn thing on it because uh, if you start talking about, if you start doing shoots, if you're going to shoot on everything, if you're going to talk about how you're all executive vice presidents, this and that and the other thing, uh, you know, uh, no, just don't. 
that's a, I read about a column about the AEW TV deal this week, and one of the things as I said is like, you know, have your own identity, have a plan, and don't ever talk about fucking WWE. I don't want to hear guys coming out talking about back in New York or back up north, I never got my chance, or back in the WWE, they didn't use me well. I don't want to hear any of that shit. I don't care about it. Okay? Put on a good fucking wrestling program that I can look forward to every week and that I will enjoy and that others will actually follow and enjoy. That's all you have to do. I mean, I, I will excuse it in, in the case of the angle of Cody and Dustin because that actually is a feud where WWE does play a role. That's fine. Like, there actually is something to that. But yeah, otherwise, and that's part of an internet build, you know, though. I'm talking like when they get yeah, to TV. I don't want to hear all – like this show is like how many times was WWF and World Wrestling Federation name dropped? Probably more in WCW. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So why would anybody care when you're constantly talking about the other guys? So, yeah, Bret Hart closed out Nitro, which will yeah. segue into our next topic. Steve Cook, the quote-unquote holy grail, was released on Monday night. The long-rumored match that existed between Bret Hart and the guy Vince McMahon thought would be the next big star, Mr. Tom McGee. And, you know, if you were a tape trader, and I know there's not a lot of tape trading people around still, but this was one of those matches that you always heard about and just thought you'd never see because nobody seemed to have it. It was always out there. Bret Hart had this match with this guy that was supposed to be the next big thing, and it was really good, and you keep hearing about it, but then it would just, it never materialized. And, um, like, on the special, I love that Cassius Ono on the special. And, like, he was talking about that, and he was really good on that. So, Steve, thoughts on the documentary before we get to the match? I know something of a wrestling historian himself, and I remember and I remember when I read Bret Hart's book, uh, the Hitman book, he, he wrote about this match with Tom McGee. He talked about uh, how he did all he could to make Tom McGee look like the next big thing, and uh, sure enough, uh, he looked like the next big thing. Uh, we take a look at the documentary here, and uh, you get the things from people like X-Pac, um, talks about how he saw McGee against Ted DiBiase at TV taping. Uh, McGee wrestled a couple matches, like he had one with Ted DiBiase, Arn had one with Arn Anderson. Those yeah. ones had popped up here and there. We'd seen uh, people had seen those places. Uh, one of my personal favorite uh, takes there from Harry Smith and Tyson Kidd, which which is leads to a great story. Which apparently I am not surprised by this at all. Bret Hart apparently playing his own matches at a barbecue. Yeah, Are you family surprised barbecue with Bret Hart. No, not at all. No, he's he's got the, he's got TV out and he's playing like a tape of his own matches. You know, that's what Bret Hart would do. <laughs> oh goodness! But uh, apparently, what, apparently, what happened was Bret lost the tape at some point. He uh, he promised to play it, but he either he could, either he lost it or he didn't want to find it or whatever it was. Um, your boy Sam Roberts popped up. I guess Sam was a big tape trader back in the day. Did you ever uh, trade tapes to Sam Roberts? Uh, no. No, okay. Um, you know, he talks about how nobody knew about the match, how it was an urban legend. His theory was that they might have, per- that WWE might have purposely lo- lost the match because it's a reminder of how wrong they were. And there's no real reason to keep it. And then we see, uh, Cash Stone pops up too, but then we see uh, 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 Ring of Honor uh, photography legend Mary Kate Anthony. <laughs> back uh, back in the glory days of Ring of Honor, uh, you you probably remember Larry. There's always this redhead at ringside that would take pictures. Like every single show, she was down there taking pictures, and I saw her at a number of dating shows. And uh, she pops up here 
And apparently uh, she somehow became an affiliate of Bret Hart. Uh, she got a bunch of tapes to convert to DVD. And sure enough, she finds the tape. Finds the Bret Hart Tom McGee tape. And the internet goes crazy. Everybody going banana, if you will. And we're going banana here. Cash is out here geeking out. Um, apparently, and they point out, a couple of people point out that, uh, sure enough, uh, when Vince watched that match, he thought he was looking at his next big superstar world champion. And, uh, well, he was. It wasn't Tom McGee. Yeah, and the one thing I found really funny is, and it has to do with this special, but not directly with the matches, there were actually people upset that WWE did this because StarCast was going to have a Bret Hart, Tom McGee Q&A and show the match. Yeah. And you're like, well, they're undercutting StarCast. Well, you know what? Were they undercutting StarCast? Sure, absolutely. No, no, no uh, hey, hey, they were, but here's the but. thing. Was WWE making a documentary based on its own intellectual property that they own? Absolutely, they were. They had every right to do it. And as uh, as Conrad pointed out somewhere, uh, I think this only helps StarCast that uh, it gives this whole thing more notoriety. Uh, people who may didn't know about the old Brad Tom McGee thing, uh, watching the network, watching WWE programming, now they know about it. And then they'll hear that, oh, Brad and Tom McGee are going to be at the StarCast thing. So. I think it works out great for StarCast, honestly. I mean, I hope it does, but it's just like people are like, oh, well, you know, WWE undercuts people, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, it's like, yeah, they do a lot, but it's their, again, it's their own intellectual property. Yep. Why wouldn't you? It got buzzed because it was found. It's one of those things that geeks like us fucking love, Steve. Like, yeah. this match was unearthed, and we've heard about it for years and read about it. And, you know, I remember reading about McGee and the Observer, and then, like you said, reading in Brett's book talking about it. And it's it's just been this thing that I knew existed, but I would never thought I'd see. Yeah. And then, of course, the, I mean, as you get towards the end of the documentary here, we finally see the one and only Tom McGee. That's right. And you can tell, and I mean this in a good way, that yeah, this man was not built for the wrestling business because he got out of it, seems perfectly happy being out of it. Way and, too nice. Way and, too yeah, nice. And he's far, he's out of the wrestling bubble. Just like you can tell by the way he spoke because he was talking about like the match and Brett was so smooth and moving. Yeah, it's so much fun working with Brett, man. You know? Yeah, and then he's like, um, I saw the pink flash of his uniform. It's like, <laughs> uniform? It's like, yeah, this dude is not in the wrestling bubble at all. No. And good for him. Because he seemed rather happy. He seems he seems like a happy happy fellow. Apparently, he never heard all that hype that Vince gave him about being the next Hulk Hogan. And they, they obviously try to keep him, him from hearing that. But uh, he really liked working with Brett. Uh, he had worked with, uh, he had he'd trained in the dungeon. Hadn't he, hadn't he trained with Stu? Yeah. So he, he knew Brett pretty well at this point, and so Brett knew how to uh, make him work, as we find out. The Holy Grail. And I was, I was surprised, uh, for one thing, that we had commentary from Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby the Brain Heenan. Yeah, that was uh, really cool. To hear those voices again. And they're kind of doing their just doing their typical banter, you know. They, the, you know, talking about the match, talking about things going on, you know. Gorilla comparing McGee favorably to people like Paul Orndorff and King Kong Bundy and he didn't get all upset about it. You know, so it's, it's classic Gorilla and Bobby on a match that never even got aired. You know, just great to hear those voices again in a fresh match. And we join the match in progress. McGee doing his, doing his backflip gimmick and he, he keeps working that, working that arm bar. 
doing some nice looking arm drags. Uh, Brett gets a little offense, and then uh, M- McGee backflips off top rope, does the drop kick, does another drop kick, and Bret Hart gets outside. Jimmy Hart, the mouth of the south down there, is manager at the time, and uh, so Brett finally gets the offense a little bit, uh, you know, chokes him, does does typical Bret Hart things, if you will, and McGee makes the comeback again. He sends him to the turnbuckles for that classic Bret Hart uh, front bump. And he finally, he does a small package. Uh, and then uh, we just got, Brett does a suplex and that turns into a roll for McGee for the win. And it wasn't like a five-star match or anything like that. But yeah, Tom McGee looked like a pretty solid professional wrestler. And with that look, you could see where Vince would be like, hey, look at that. Yeah, but he, you can also it, tell that Bret Hart was completely carrying the thing if you're watching it from our perspective. Yeah, yeah. It, it's an all-time carry job by Bret. It's fantastic work by him. Uh, McGee, obviously, yeah, he had a, an amazing look, and he did have a good background with the strongman stuff and the martial arts, and he had he had a great physique. He had that like Kerry Von Erich hair. I mean, dude, look, I, he looked like a star. Yeah, and he did things that some guys, especially his size, weren't doing then, and I could see why they would want to make the guy a star. And but then again, you, you look at that match, and I mean, the only thing that was missing from the match was Brett leading him around by a leash. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, but I mean, Brett got the absolute most out of him, and I th- I thought it was a good match, even by today's terms. It was a good good professional wrestling match. And, it was um, very, very good. Yeah, just an, impressive to see what Brett got out of him there. Yeah. Uh, one interesting talking point that uh, some folks on the documentary brought up as well. Um, something that kind of confused me a little bit. Um, they were talking about how apparently, like, uh, some people, like, somehow Bret Hart has become this forgotten great worker. You, you, you notice how they're trying to put that over, like, oh, people are now realizing how great Bret Hart really is. And I thought people always kind of realized that. I mean, there was a time period where they wouldn't play as matches because of the whole Montreal business and all that. And maybe some of Brett's greatness has been uh, kind of forgotten due to Montreal and some of the other things that happened there. But I don't know. I just uh, I don't think of Bret Hart as a forgotten great worker. No, I thought that one was a really odd take. I don't think that. Anybody that's paid attention to wrestling over the years and followed his career to any degree would think that. Um, I mean, Brett's an all-time great dude, and like you can, you can say he thinks a little much of himself or that, and stuff like that. And I, I understand why people say that because like you, you read some of his stuff, and he does come off a little holier than thou talking about himself. But then again, I mean, when you're that good at something, I think you have an ego that goes along with it. So, yeah, and yeah he, I don't you think have an entire either. country that worships him in, in Canada. I mean, he's still the, their favorite wrestler by a country mile. Uh, yeah. I mean, all the guys that come along after him, that's still Brett. It's yeah, still and I Brett. don't think anybody would downplay his, his in-ring career because, I mean, yeah, dude was an all-time great. I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to find bad Bret Hart matches probably until you got to his WCW run for the most yeah. part. Well, yeah, he wasn't exactly motivated at that point. But, I, I mean, as a, as a kid, Brett was the first uh, WWF champion that I saw on a regular basis uh, up until, like, 92 or so. I'd seen, uh, you know, you, you'd hear about Hogan. You'd hear about, the, you know, people here and there. But they usually weren't on television. Brett was on TV pretty often during his title reign. And I, I always thought he was a great champion, whether it's with that title or Aaron Connell's title belt. 
Yeah, his stuff always it always looked realistic to me. You know, he was one of those workers who his stuff always looked crisp. Uh, his his selling was always on point. He just uh, he brought that kind of realisticness to it that I appreciated, as, even as a young fan, even before I knew you know all the uh, some of the inside stuff about the business and all that. Even as a young little fan who didn't know nothing, uh, Brett was always one of my favorite workers back then. Guys, to one of my favorite guys to watch. Yeah, I always and, liked I always liked Brett and the Hard Foundation. Always liked him when he moved on from that. And yeah, it's just. Brett was great. I mean, I, there's no other way to really say it. And it's it's aged very well too. If you go back and if you watch the DVD sets or if you just watch something on the network, it it still holds up. I mean, Brett's style is just something that seems timeless to me. It, it is, and I think that's a very fair assessment because there, there's a lot of stuff that you can go back and it while it's not bad, it feels a little dated. And then you go back and you can watch Brett's stuff, and that's feels fresh, feels like it could fit in. And that's why I always say it's like it's really – you know something is really great when you can do that. Like I always talk about the uh, the Dynamite Kid Tiger Mask original matches because that shit was – it was state-of-the-art in the early 80s. And then you could put that on TV, and it would just smoke so much shit today. Yeah. So it's it's amazing. But, yeah, Brett's stuff is pretty much timeless. It's It doesn't feel dated in any way. And that's just – it's just the overall style he worked. It's just – it worked on so many levels. So yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't see him as a forgotten great worker. I mean, I mean, for me personally, I mean, from what I've seen, I, I have him in my top five. Yeah, I don't, I just don't know where that wacky narrative came from. It seems so weird. It's like I've never heard people generally talking about Brett. You know, it's it's always been that he's been great. You know, and yeah. I, so I don't know. Maybe they're just trying to reinforce it to a new generation watching oh. stuff. Possibly so. Yeah, may tell the kids that, hey, yeah, check out this Bret Hart guy on the network. We got a ton of his matches. So, yeah, watch some of that stuff and see how it, how it looks. And But w- when we talk about guys who I feel are forgotten great wrestlers, that kind of brings us to the next thing we want to talk about today, the Dark Side of the Ring series. That's right. Dark Side of the Ring finished up the uh, initial run with episodes on Gino Hernandez, a star of uh, World Class Championship Wrestling, and the fabulous Moolah. So, Steve, first of all, we will talk about the Gino Hernandez uh, one, which uh, I kind of thought it was fine. I um, It didn't feel like a big dig, deep dig into it for me. I don't know. I think that the uh, like the world-class documentaries did a better job. It just it didn't feel like a lot of fresh info. Um, it, you know, it's like everybody knew that he pretty much murdered – Drugs probably played a big deal into his lifestyle because the big thing with Gino you always heard is he had a sugar bowl on his uh, kitchen table and it was always filled with cocaine. <laughs> oh yeah, good times. Yeah, Gino is some now Gino is somebody I would classify as a forgotten uh, great wrestler because uh, let's face it, I mean outside of those world class documentaries, you don't hear a whole lot about Gino Hernandez these days. He wasn't around for very long either. I mean, how how long do you wrestle? Like maybe. Maybe 10 years, possibly, because yeah, he started really young. Yeah, he wasn't around. Uh, gone too soon, definitely. I I always uh, – yeah, Gino, but, uh, early tag team stuff with Tully Blanchard is great. Yeah, uh, Dynamic Heroes, solid tag team. Yeah, I always, I always had this like uh, – I always did this fantasy booking thing to where I had um, the horsemen split up at one point because Tully was basically jealous of Flair, always taking the spotlight. Because Tully sure. was – you know, a star. 
Yeah. And he just he always had to play second, third fiddle, the flair and the horseman. And I always thought it would be cool, you know, like if it happened, you know, when he was alive, obviously, you know, yeah. one of the guys totally brings in to basically form his own four horsemen. You know, he brings in Chino and, and you go from there. But yeah, I um his stuff with Tully is really great. Stuff with Chris Adams really good and world class. A lot of good stuff. And again, I not to downplay the documentary, I don't think it was bad by any means. But I think um if you want to get a deeper dive onto a lot of the stuff and hear from more people that were there, like Gary Hart and others, like that Heroes of World Class is really, really great. It was interesting to hear from Gino's mother. I mean, she had a lot of interesting stuff to tell about uh, about how she felt how she felt as a murder, and there was a whole story with her and uh, some of the people involved with Gino at the time. We also heard from the ex-wife, also heard from the daughter, uh, Jeannie Clark. You know, Lady Blossom was on the show. I hadn't seen her in a long time. The ex-wife, of course, of Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yeah, uh, Jake Roberts was there. Bruce Pritchard was saying some things. I thought one of the most interesting things, at least to me, was something they left off the show. That they had uh, kind of a bonus footage on. I think it's on Twitter or whatever. But uh, they, there's a rumor going around for years that uh, Gino's father was actually Paul Bosch, the longtime promoter of Houston. And that rumor just been going on for years and years and years. And we finally hear from uh, Gino's mother that, no, no, she didn't know who Paul Bosch was at the time. So... Yeah, that, so that rumor kind of killed off. That's something I've been wondering about for a long time. And honestly, we should have known because if you take a look at Gina Hernandez, you take a look at Paul Bosch, where are exactly the similarity there? No. Yeah, there's pretty much none. <laughs> no. No. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, Gina was a part of Gina's appeal was he was a darn good looking man. And you can see it in his daughter and even in his kids. They got some good genes in that family. Yeah, yeah, Gino had the looks. He had the good-looking hair to go with it and everything. And Great charisma. Uh, yeah, that's what Lambert and I were kind of joking on. Uh, we're talking best of the Super Juniors and um, about one of the young lions, Ren Narita, who's really good, but he kind of gets overshadowed by Umino, who's actually the son of uh, Red Shoes, the one ref. Ah. And, and I was talking, I was like, well, you know why he gets overlooked for Umino? And he's like, nepotism? I'm like, no. I'm like, I'm like look at Umino. I was like, brother has a Tanahashi-like hair, man. Yeah, yeah, that's that's big yep. in Japan. Absolutely. Red Raiden needs a stylist stat. But other mm. people, but yeah, no, yeah. Gino is a good looking dude. Women loved him. Charisma, like you said. Good talker. He was he was one of those guys that wasn't big enough to get interest from WWE. And the thing was with like Crockett, they didn't feel he was quite a good enough worker to fit in with because obviously Crockett was heavy worker territory and everything. But um, I, I think he would have worked okay there. But yeah, if he had hung around was, a couple of years, once they once they switch their day's debut, I mean that wouldn't have been a problem. Yeah, exactly. That, then they would have screwed him up some other way, of course. But <laughs> probably. <laughs> We're to give you a drug dealer gimmick, gimmick, Gino. I'm sure it'll work out okay. Don't worry. Oh yeah, yeah, that that'll that'll help. <laughs> so, but yeah, no, I thought the Gino special was I thought it was pretty strong. I just wasn't my favorite. You know, I just, um, I didn't feel like I, like, like you said, I think probably the best part was getting to hear from his mother because that was, that was new ground and that was appreciated. But, uh, yeah, everything else felt a little rehashy to me, but, uh, it was good overall. I enjoyed it. And I, I thought that, I think for the most part, they've done a really good job on the series. They have. Now, the one, the one thing I was asked, the one thing that had me, the one thing that had me wondering about the whole, the whole thing, I, I tend to buy the whole overdose theory, honestly. 
I tend to buy that. Uh, but the thing that made me wonder is the autopsy. We're talking about how he was obese, he was Hispanic, and he was uncircumcised. And, uh, well, none of that was true. Yeah, a little conspiracy theory stuff going on there. It's a, uh, I don't know what to think about all of that, man. But yeah, it's a, uh, the whole th- stuff around his death is really, it's it's like crime novel shit, you know. <laughs> I love how that when Jake Roberts was asked how he knew that Gene was doing drugs, his answer was because I was doing them with him. <laughs> I thought he was gonna say just look at him, but yeah, he was like I was doing them with him, so I was like, yeah, he's honest. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. Hey, you know what? You can give Jake a lot of shit for a lot of things, but he's been honest about his abuse over the years. And yeah, yeah he he didn't hide that. Yeah, snorting it up with him, man. Sugar bowl at the table, brother. Yeah, I mean, I tend to buy the whole, you know, overdose slash combined with other things deal, but there's some interesting stuff there. And we'll probably, we'll never know for sure. I feel like whoever knows for sure is, uh, probably long gone at this point or in jail or in jail for so, something else also so very positive we move on to the the season finale which was dark side of the ring fabulous mullah was a piece of shit and uh <laughs> this fucking special man there there were some delusional people on this special there really 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 were i mean i'm not gonna sit here and blame her family for you know, saying only good things about Moolah because why wouldn't they? I mean, it would. The thing about from your perspective, like if a member of your family, if your mom or whatever, had was accused of doing things that Moolah did, even if even if you think that she probably did them, you don't want to don't want to say it, right? Oh, exactly. Yeah, I'm not mad about that. Like I knew her, her family and friends were going to defend her, but uh. What the hell was the one chick? Princess, what's her name? Princess Victoria. That that piece of work. Oh, yeah, gosh. this woman. She sits there and she tells a story about Moolah trained her and Moolah bought her like a $300 gear. And then like she ends up breaking her neck. So she can't work, obviously. Yeah. Moolah tries to get her to work, brings her in the ring. She's crying the whole time. Taking thumbs on broken neck, yeah. Yeah. So then she sits there and Moolah basically... Sets up a date with a dude and says, you know, you need a booking fee. And basically she was sending her to have sex with the dude. Yeah, pretty much. And she didn't have sex with the guy, came back, Moolah got pissed, kicked her off the compound that they all lived on. And then later on in the show at the end, this chick is defending Moolah. You can't call Moolah a pimp because you'd be calling me a prostitute. It's unfair to judge her now that she's dead. And I'm like, wait a minute. 20 minutes ago, you just <laughs> you said that the, the bitch put you on a plane <laughs> and sent you to fuck somebody for a booking fee. Your words, not mine. Yeah, she told that whole story about how the poor Princess Victoria, was, uh, she had her neck broken, so Mula tried to get money out of her <laughs> in a different way. Because she couldn't make money off her wrestling, so she's gonna make money off her doing something else. And she told her, "Listen, the more you do, the more you're gonna get paid." I, when you're the one telling us that uh, she pimped you out, then what are we supposed to think? We're we're supposed are we supposed to not call her a pimp or what? like it was just it was so pro wrestling, you know? 
just so pro wrestling. This wrestler telling us this sob story, and then all of a sudden turn around at the end. You better not say a goddamn word about the fabulous Moolah. She's a goddamn legend. How dare you say a thing unless you were? If you weren't there, you can't say a word. It was just. What's like? Uh, but you bad. just told us a really bad story, lady. You told us that twenty minutes ago. <laughs> and then you got was it Wendy Richter didn't know Moolah was the Spider Woman. And 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 how does that work? Most of the people in Madison Square Garden seem pretty convinced that it's a fabulous Moolah when she came out there. I mean, sure, she had the bodysuit gimmick on, she had the mask on, but uh, Moolah's been wrestling for like 40 years, so we all kind of knew what she looked like and, uh, as far as her body went, right? We we, we could all kind of recognize her. Well, there the weren't, weren't too many wrestlers that looked like that at that point. Not too many wrestlers looked like a 60-year-old woman. Yeah, I don't know if she was trying to keep the K-5 alive, but she's like, yeah, I got in the ring, and I didn't remember the spider lady being that big. <laughs> Fucking really? You just said and you even, wrestled her a bunch of times, and you've wrestled Moolah a shit ton of times. Jesus, you I mean, Moolah trained her and wrestled her how many times? you think she would know. She she might maybe notice a smell or something. I don't know. Yeah, it was really, really weird. And then, uh, yeah, just some of the other women on there, they were like, you know, Moolah's a, she was a legend and a trendsetter. And then, like, some of them are like, well, she held the business back for 40 years. And then at the end, it's basically like, well, we don't want to say anything bad about her because she's dead now. It's like, wait, wait, wait. You were just saying bad things about her 20 minutes ago. <laughs> it's like, you just can't change your tune. And then you have the, the dude that did the, the documentary on her. That they're like, oh, oh, God. I was, that, that I was so insulted that they changed the name of the Moolah Battle Royal. I didn't understand why. Well, let's see here, genius. Nigel, you dumb fuck. WWE is a publicly traded company that has sponsors. And when the sponsors get upset over a legend that is now being portrayed as a fucking pimp and a bitch, well, yeah, you kind of want to change things and not honor her at the biggest show of the year, which you're sponsoring. Common cool. sense, buddy. Like, And I didn't even know why he was on the damn show because they, they had enough people on there defending her anyway. He was just, I guess he was just there coming off like a looney tune. I don't know. What his yeah. deal was. I felt bad for old, old Bambi there. Selena Majors felt bad for her because I'm not sure that she's ever realized that the reason she didn't get into WWF was because Moolah didn't win the competition. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't know if she's ever realized that. And I'm not. And I. And Selena was a fine worker in her day. And she's still. She's still trained the people for the women of wrestling shows. So, I mean, I don't take anything away from her as far as her work goes. I just uh, had to question whether she. Uh, Made all connected all dots there. I would say she didn't, judging by her talking points there. Yeah, it's yeah. I don't know, man. It's like I I really try not to be a judgmental person, but just like all the stories you heard over the years and stuff, and you know, you have some women that are trying to defend her because Mula gave them a shot, but then like, how much of a shot did she really give you when she was taking twenty five percent of your booking, and then if you didn't pay her, she wouldn't book you anywhere. Uh huh. Yeah. It's like, eh, she helped you out a whole lot by getting. And when you're putting over a sixty-year-old ass all these times. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know, just, but um... uh, as fun, my, I mean, my take on Fabulous Mullah, and uh, you know, we heard the story, we heard the sweet Georgia Brown stuff too, which is which is awful, and uh, my take on her. I mean, if you want to be that guy that's all like, well, you can't judge if you weren't there. You know, maybe she didn't do all that stuff or whatever. Fine, okay, I'll throw that. I'll throw all that out. My take on Moolah always has been from a wrestling perspective is that she set the wrestling, the women's wrestling business back 40 years. 
because she trained a lot of people and uh, she didn't train a lot of them to work. And uh, she kept herself on top. She kept all the money for herself. And women's wrestling, it's making big leaps and bounds now. It's making history right now. It could have made this history 30 years ago if Fabulous Moolah wasn't holding everybody down. Yeah, and and teaching we, herself talk- on top as a 65-year-old champion. Yeah, you and I talked for years about the potential of women's wrestling, Steve. And we, we would always talk about it like when Shimmer was coming up and putting on quality stuff. And then like, you know, the Gail Kim, Awesome Kong stuff. How we were like, yeah, what's wrong with letting them main event? Because they were putting on like the best matches on the card. And people would like mock us because the women can't main event. It's only a niche thing. They had Nobody the preconception of watching all those fabulous Moolah matches that are terrible. Exactly. So it's, yeah, it's. I was never a Moolah fan. You know, she had the title for like 90 years because she ran the booking and she gained Vince McMahon's confidence. And and when did she finally get over, Larry? When did when was Moolah at her most over? When she was feuding with fucking Cindy Lauper. Yeah. And then, and then again, she was the most over when she was returning in the 90s and getting hit by fucking guitars and powerbombed and shit and... Had nothing but to do with. But let's be honest, May Young was a more over worker worker in that pairing. May Young did all the work there. Moolah's yeah. along for the ride, like usual. Pretty much. <laughs> so I don't uh, know. Yeah, we're we're not not we're not Moolah fans here. I guess we've established. Yeah, I I, I came away from that <laughs> documentary of like the Gino one. I came away with like just felt like you know it really sucked that his career didn't get a chance to last longer, but. Obviously, he made a lot of bad choices, you know, but I mean, Gino had a ton of potential. I get done with the Moolah one, and all I can think of is, what a fucking piece of shit. We go from somebody who didn't get enough time to somebody who stayed around way too long, which, uh, you know, the old saying, uh, you know, the the good die young and the bastards live forever. Uh, That's pretty much the truth in this uh, case of these two shows. And so, yeah, so that will wrap us up today, Steve. We uh, finished Dark Side of the Ring. They're going to be, Vice is going to be debuting a new show called The Wrestlers, which was a bunch of stuff taped around the world at indie events and stuff. And we'll be highlighting various wrestlers, including Mia Yim, who's in NXT now and others. So uh, we can check that out and maybe talk about that next time we get together. And we will decide on our next retro show soon, folks, and I will keep you updated. As a reminder, you can follow the 411 on Wrestling Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, YouTube, and, of course, the 411mania.com website. If you have a chance, please subscribe. Share us around on social media. And if you can, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it, and it will help the show grow. For Steve Cook, I am Larry Zonka. Thank you guys for listening, and happy wrestling.